Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad that all of you are here today. Those of you who are live, those of you who are joining us in the Cross Point Center, those of you who have invited us into your home, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be with you. When I was a kid growing up, I had two brothers, one older, one younger. Um, we were gifted at a Christmas one year before the Christmas story came out with BB guns. And we didn't worry about shooting our eyes out. We only concerned about shooting other people's eyes out. Because when we got our BB guns, man, we shot everything. We lived in the city. We lived in Glen Oaks and Baton Rouge. We'd go by and we'd shoot signs. We'd shoot um, houses. We'd shoot lights. We'd shoot people. All of our friends had one eyes. And so uh, we, we, we shot everything we could, but we lived in the city, so we didn't have the access of being out there on the countryside. But one summer, the three brothers and I, all three of us, had the opportunity to go spend a week at our grandparents' house. They lived in the country in Louisiana. They ran an old country store. They lived in the backside of it. I mean, life was cool out there. So we got our BB guns, and we're just going down these gravel roads. We're shooting everything, man. We're shooting birds, we're shooting rabbits, we're shooting deer, we're shooting all kinds of stuff. Now, my, my grandparents had some cows and they had a couple of horses, they had a bunch of goats, and they had a ton of chickens. And I'm walking in the front yard one day with my BB gun, I'm shooting cans, and my grandmother stops and she says, Philip Mark, that's what she called me when she was mad at me or wanted to warn me for something. Philip Mark, don't you shoot my chickens. Now, I have to tell you, I never thought about shooting her chickens until then. Suddenly, I couldn't get the thought out of my mind. I was consumed. I had this obsession with chickens. All of a sudden, the law of sin and death was real, and I was at work within me. I'm sitting there thinking, what would it be like to shoot a chicken? Man, I hope a chicken comes. And all of a sudden, here comes this chicken around a corner, and I took my BB gun, I shot, pap, boom. I said, man, that sounded good. I liked the way that sounded. That chicken ran off, so I didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, it just hit him. Another chicken came out, shot again, thud. Like, yeah, man, come on. That chicken runs off. Third one comes out. I shoot it to, bam, same thing, runs off. Don't think anything of it. I think I just scared the chickens. About 20 minutes later, my grandmother says, Philip, Mark, come here. I came over there to the door. She brought me to the back, and there was a dead chicken. One of them I killed. And she just looked at me. She said, didn't I tell you not to shoot my chicken? My first thought was, yeah, baby, I killed that thing. But I thought, that's not the proper response right now. And I just looked at her and she said, yes, ma'am. And she said, give me your BB gun. She took my BB gun. She took me to one of the rooms in the old house. And she said, you stay here till supper time. I thought, I am in trouble. I'm going to be grounded for the rest of my time here. And I sat there in that dark room, seemed like hours and hours and hours. I could hear her in the kitchen. I could hear my grandfather coming in, and he was stern. He was quiet. I was scared of him because I never knew what he would say. Finally, supper time came, and she called me out. My two brothers are sitting there. My grandfather's sitting at the head of the table. My grandmother's on this side, and I'm just sitting there. And he's stern looking. He's just looking at me, not saying a word. I'm thinking, I'm in big trouble. Nobody said a word. She put this pot right in the middle of the table. She takes the top off of it, and what is in it? 
a chicken. Nobody says a word. She takes a knife and she carves off that big side of the breast and she puts it in my grandfather's plate. And he says, ah, looks good, honey. And then she takes the wings and the legs and gives it to my two brothers. She turns that pan around. She cuts off the other breast, the biggest portion. She puts it in my plate and just winks at me. And I'm thinking, okay, did she poison it? (laughs) And she puts it in my plate. And then she takes the thighs, never says a word. I'm eating this chicken breast thinking, I don't deserve this. Man, I should be punished. I should be beaten. Something should come as a real result of this. The meal went and not a word was said. And what my grandmother did that evening was she served me grace. That wasn't the name of the chicken, by the way. (laughs) She gave me what I didn't deserve. It was unmerited favor. And that's the picture of God's grace, of the things that we have done and the ways that we have offended him and the ways we have broken his rules and his regulations, yet through Christ going to cross on our behalf, dying and bringing us justification and forgiveness, he gives to us the free gift of grace. And in chapter five, that's what we've been talking about as Paul has talked about the old, the the Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam, and Adam brings us condemnation and separation from God, but the new Adam, Jesus, brings us free grace. He gives it to us as a gift. Now, I want to tell you something. Grace very often is something that is confusing, is difficult, because we, we like the thought of something free, but many times we don't know what to do with something free. And what we do many times is we take free grace, and if we're not careful, we can turn it into cheap grace. There's a difference between free grace and cheap grace. And through all of the time of the apostles and all of their teaching, they had to struggle with this difficulty of people taking free grace and turning it into cheap grace. Let me give you an illustration of what it looks like. I've got this chart. Cheap grace lives between two extremes on one continuum. Cheap grace often demonstrates itself in legalism. Legalism adds to grace. Legalism says grace isn't enough. We got to add something to it. So it cheapens the free gift by making you add something to it to make you feel like you deserve it. It cheapens grace. Those who are legalists add their little list, they add all their requirements, and legalists are grace killers. They kill grace. On the other side is liberalism. They don't add to it. What they do is they abuse it. While legalists kill grace, liberalism abuses grace. It presumes on the grace of God. It says, I can live any way that I like to because God's grace is going to cover me. Therefore, grace becomes an expectation on your part and you begin to abuse it so you can live any way that you want. Free grace doesn't bring legalism or liberalism. Free grace brings liberty because you're free. Now, the apostles had to deal with this. The legalists were called Judaizers. These were the ones that would come and say, yeah, you get the grace of Jesus, but let's add the law to it. And what do they do? They kill grace. And those who are liberal, liberalism, what they do is they become what was known as the antinomians. The word anti means against, nomian means against the law. 
And so they're against the law. The antinomians are the people who said, you know what? We can just keep sinning because if, if sin abounds and grace abounds all the more, then the more I sin, the more grace I get and the more glorified God is. When we get to chapter six, these are the people that the apostle Paul is in an argument with. He's already shared with them about the free gift, but now the antinomians are coming along and they've got this crazy twisted view that if I sin more, then God is glorified more. If that's true, then it's obligated of me to sin as much as I can, throw myself fully at sin so that God can receive a greater glory because the concept was this. If you're an ordinary sinner, God only receives a little glory. If you're an extraordinary sinner, God receives a lot of glory, so let's just sin. And for us to understand a full flow of chapter six, as he's beginning to deal with these antinomians, these grace abusers, we gotta go back to chapter five. We gotta look at verses 20 and 21, and here's how he left it. He said, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So these people are saying, okay, okay, you see, Paul? There it is. If we sin more, we get more grace. And God is glorified. So chapter six, Paul is dealing with this kind of mindset. And as we unpack chapter six, he is going to prove to us that God's grace is greater than stubborn sin. Last week, we saw God's grace was greater than Adam's sin. Today, we're gonna see it's greater than stubborn sin. So this was a very difficult passage to break down and outline. And so I just broke it down into four areas that I think would be very helpful because here's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to understand what free grace really is and how free grace should change our lives. So let's begin with the first point. Here's the first thing Paul addresses. Paul addresses an incompatible practice. This incompatible practice, this unbelievable twisted sense that if I sin more, I get more grace. So what does he say in verse one? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, right here when he says, we're, or shall we continue in sin? Let me make a distinction here. He's not talking about a believer who occasionally sins. We're going to deal with that next week, beginning in verse 15. He's not talking about the believer who stumbles into sin or occasionally sin or has that difficult temptation in their life that keeps coming up and they struggle with it. They have victory sometimes. They have defeat other times. They feel guilty when they sin. They feel like they've offended God. They turn into repentance and brokenness and they turn away from that sin. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is a continual, habitual lifestyle of sinning. This word continue to sin is in its present active indicative, which means it's ongoing. It's a person who has no moral boundaries. It's a person who lives any way that they want without any biblical spiritual convictions. This is a person that loves to just be free to do what they want, yet all the while they claim that they're Christians and they presume that the grace of God is going to cover them. 
These are antinomians who say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, but you would never know it from the way they live their life. They're totally separated from the life of a believer and look like the world. What does Paul say to those people? He says, by no means. This is the strongest phrase in the Greek. It appears over and over through the book of Romans. By no means. It it means may it never be. God forbid. Are you crazy? Shut up, girl. That ain't going to happen. You cannot hold that kind of thought and consider yourself to be a child of God. Now, here's a warning to so many people in our culture and so many people in our churches today. We have a lot of antinomians who abuse the grace of God. We got a lot of people who claim to be Christians, yet their lives are living a habitual lifestyle of sin. And they seem not to have any concern with it. These are the kind of people who want justification, but they don't want sanctification in their life. These are people who want a cross or Christ, but they don't want a cross. These are the people who want delight, but they don't want death. What do they want? They want their own freedom to be able to do what they want and say that they're a believer, then suddenly God will recognize by pouring his grace upon him. Let me tell you, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing to presume on the grace of God. And these people abuse grace. I can't tell you the number of people that have come to me that are living lives that are like the world, but they claim to be Christians. People who are living together before marriage and have no qualms or problems with being sexually active in a relationship that is not blessed by Almighty God. And yet they'll claim Christ, they'll claim grace, and they will continue to live a habitual life like that. I had a couple come to me one time. They were both going to leave their spouses for each other because they felt God was calling them together for a ministry together and wanted me to marry them. I said, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to ask God's forgiveness, sir. You need to go back to your wife, ma'am. You need to go back to your husband. You both need to repent and you never need to see each other again. They got out of my office and never came back. Praise Lord. You see, the reality is, here's what people end up doing. They compartmentalize their lives in such a way that they put every little thing in neat boxes. I see this all the time. It's like this. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor. I'm a friend. I'm a brother. Oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. And so we have all our neat little boxes and all of who we are in these boxes. These boxes can't touch each other and this box, Jesus is in it. That's the mindset of people who live habitual lives of sin and claim to be a Christian. But Jesus isn't in the box. Listen carefully, Jesus is the box. Everything goes into the box where Jesus is. I am not just a husband, I'm a Christian husband. I'm a Christian father. I'm a Christian grandfather. I'm a Christian worker. I'm a Christian neighbor. I'm a Christian brother. And no matter what else I do, Christianity permeates every aspect of who I am instead of just being in a box. This past week, I was reading, just reading through the mail, read some um, news, and I came across a Baptist pastor in Alabama who was also the mayor of that city, He was caught cross-dressing 
and putting all of these photos on the internet. And then I got caught by, by a news agency and they came and they interviewed him. And here's what he wrote. And he also wrote this piece that was really, really perverted and twisted and really dark. And they asked him about all of this. He says, I'm just playing a bit of a character, he added. I don't go out and seek solicitation or anything like that. Then he said this, listen to what he says. What I do in private life has nothing to do with what I do in my holy life. The piece hit the newspaper in that small town. Unfortunately, that pastor took his own life as a result of that. But you see the picture of what's permeating our culture is I can be this and I can be this. And oh, by the way, I can be this. And some of you are presuming on the grace of God. You're claiming that you're a Christian, but your lifestyle doesn't match biblical principles. And you might be saying, Phil, who are you to judge me in that? Who are you to say that to me? You don't know my heart. You're right, I don't. God does. And so does God's word. Why do I say that? Because here's what Paul does next. He not only says that's incompatible, but Paul secondly provides illustrations for why all stubborn sin is incompatible. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you cannot live a habitual lifestyle of sin. And Paul gives three reasons for that. Here's the first thing he says. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He gives three illustrations of why you and I cannot live a life of stubborn sin. Number one, we have died to sin. As a believer, when you come to faith in Christ, you have died to sin. And I just want to say something. When you die, things change, don't they? Everything changes. One thing that changes is when you're dead, you cannot respond to to, um, physical stimuli. If I took a corpse of somebody who died and I bring them to the finest restaurant, I put them in front of a table, prop them up at the table, put the finest foods in front of them, they cannot eat that food. Why? Because they're dead. If I bring them to a beautiful scenery and they see this mountain and this beautiful river flowing through it and everybody's going, ah, they don't respond because they're what? They're dead. If I prop them up somewhere and pass every single human temptation in front of them, they will not respond because they are dead. And listen, before Jesus, we were spiritually dead. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not respond to spiritual stimuli. We couldn't feel it, we couldn't see it, we couldn't experience it. But when we come to faith in Christ, God makes us alive. Then all of a sudden, everything is new. We now can respond to spiritual stimuli. We understand truth because the Holy Spirit is living within us. Therefore, when I come to faith in Christ, the dead man no longer is impacting me. The new man in Christ is stimulated by the Spirit of God who's living in me and the Word of God that's poured over me. And then I am different. I like the way one man wrote it. He said this, for believers... Sin is no longer their status, their state, or their master. 
You cannot live in sin land when the government posts your obituary in the local newspaper. Why would you want to remain there anyway when you recently received a letter notifying you that you had just inherited grace land? And I'm not talking about Elvis's place. I love that because you are new. Remember the bumper sticker that used to go around a long time ago? Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. How many of you remember that? Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. It's a wonderful sounding bumper sticker, but theologically is so off base. Christians, the difference between believers and non-believers isn't just forgiveness. It's not that you're forgiven and unbelievers are not forgiven. No, the distinction between believers and non-believers is that believers have been transformed into a new person. And everything about them is to be new. So Paul says, first of all, you can't keep living this stubborn sin because you have died to sin. Secondly, that we can't keep this because we have been immersed in Jesus' death by baptism. He said, we've been immersed in his death by baptism. I love the way he says, do you not know? He says, have you forgotten? Don't you understand what baptism is all about? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Now, Paul's using the illustration of baptism. By the way, the word baptizo was not a religious word. It just simply means to put underwater. If you washed your dishes, you baptized them, you put them underwater. If you got water out of a bucket into a cup and you used a ladle, you baptized that ladle. You put it, immersed it in water to get that. But it became a very important, significant symbol for the believers. In fact, the early church couldn't even conceive of someone claiming to be a Christian and not being baptized. Because here's why. Baptism is a dramatic picture of what has happened to you as a result of your relationship with Jesus Christ. The first thing he says is this, we are immersed in his death and we are immersed in his burial. When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. And by the way, burial seems to be the point of final closure. If you go to any funeral, any memorial service, they'll do the front end and then they have the graveside and then they put the dirt on the coffin which says, this is closure. In other words, it's a picture that you and I have been died with Christ and we have been buried with him. That's why baptism is so beautiful. When we do baptism, you saw it this morning. The first part of it is the individual professes Christ. They make those public confessions of faith and then we put that person underwater. They immersed in water. When they go under the water, it is a picture that they are immersed in the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus. It is a public declaration that I'm dead to sin and I am immersed, surrounded by what Jesus did on the cross. Now, we do baptisms all the time and I've done so many baptisms. I don't do many anymore, but I'll never forget one of my most memorable baptisms was a man who was six foot seven. I'm five foot seven. And uh, he was a giant of a man. He, he was baptized as an infant in another denomination that sprinkled and he wanted to join this church and he really struggled with the issue of baptism. But when I talked with him, the meaning of baptism, that is a picture of you being dead and buried with Christ. He said, yeah, I want to do that. 
Well, the day of the baptism came and they didn't put as much water as they normally put in a baptistry for some reason. Somebody said, watch this. So, uh, so that would be Mr. Dana. So uh, anyway, anyway, I get in there and the water's not real deep. He comes in, but we were both nervous. Here's why. He, he's scared to death of water. And I was nervous because he just told me that. And I didn't know that before. And so I tell him, I said, now, now, Mr. Jim, I want you to bend your knees, go all the way down, touch the ground, and I'm going to put you under the water. He said, okay. So it came time. We did all that. He bent his knees. He went down. I'm pushing. He's pushing up. And I'm pushing, and he's pushing up. And I got all of him, but that much of his forehead. Couldn't get him under. So I'm holding him, and I sprinkle him. So he was, baptized, he was immersed and sprinkled. He finally came up. But the picture is that you have died and you are buried with Christ. Let me tell you, when you die and you're buried, things change. But here's the third illustration he says, that we're identified with Jesus by resurrection through baptism. It's one thing for us to be put under water. It's another thing to be brought up. Here's what he says. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You saw it this morning. We baptized that young lady. We put her under the water. We have a policy at Scotts Hill. Once we put you under, we always bring you back up. That's our policy. It's a standing policy. It never changes. We do not hold you down. Now, some people we hold down a little longer. But we always come back up. Why? Because the believer is raised with Christ to a newness of life. It's not just because we don't want to be charged with drowning people. It's because it's a picture. And when you were baptized, that's what Paul says, don't you know, don't you remember that when you were baptized, you stood before the congregation. You said, I am dead. I'm buried with Christ. You were raised to walk a newness of life. You gave a public testimony to everyone that your new Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today, if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you've never been baptized by immersion, I want to encourage you to really consider that. Because that's biblical. It's the first act of obedience whereby I identify with Jesus. I'm immersed in Jesus. I declare I'm dead to my sin. It blesses the heart of the Father because of your obedience. It brings glory to the Lord Jesus because of his work. It encourages you because you are standing in a public testimony and it blesses the body of Christ as they watch what you do. So if you've never done it, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Now, here's what Paul says. He's saying all of this stuff to help us understand that we can't keep living a habitual lifestyle of sin because we're dead to sin. And we've been immersed in Jesus and identified with him. But then Paul gives us two implications that flow out of this. Paul gives us the implications for our union with Christ. What does that mean? Two important things. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Two implications by our being in Christ. Number one, we are to live the crucified life. We're to recognize that we are crucified with Christ. 
In Adam, when he sinned, we sinned. In Jesus, when he was crucified, we were crucified. It's the same picture. And crucifixion was one of the worst forms of torture and execution known to the world. Now, let me tell you what crucifixion doesn't do. Crucifixion wasn't designed to rehabilitate a person. Crucifixion wasn't designed to reshape a person. Crucifixion wasn't designed for there to be some reconciliation to another person or a reinvention of that person. No, crucifixion was designed to kill. That's what it was designed for. No other reason. And we live in a culture today where people want to do different things with the old man. Who is the old man? The old man is the person you were in Adam. The old man is being driven by your flesh and your passionate desires. That's the old man. That's the person before Christ. And so what does the world want to do with the old man? Well, the law wants to rehabilitate the old man. Religion wants to reform the old man. Our culture wants to redefine the old man. You know what God wants to do? He wants to kill the old man. God is not interested in reforming you. He's not interested in rehabilitating you. He's not interested in refining you. He's not interested in taking the old man and doing all of those things. God is interested in killing the old man. Why? Because only as the old man is put to death are you free from sin. Only as the old man is put to death are you no longer a slave to sin. And God knows he can't reform the heart. What does he do? He regenerates the heart. He gives you a new heart. You're a new person because the old man in its sin will control you and enslave you. I'm gonna date some of you right now. I was a little kid when I saw this, so I'm, I'm kind of dating myself. How many of you have ever remembered the movie Spartacus? Do you remember the movie Spartacus? Kirk Douglas was the star of it. He was Spartacus. Spartacus was a runaway slave that gathered a whole bunch of other slaves with him and had a rebellion against Rome. And people would ask Spartacus, why are you not afraid of dying? And here's what he says. He says, death is the only freedom for a slave. That's why I'm not afraid. And the same is true for the old man. The only way you and I can break free of the old man is that old man has to be crucified. And you and I, interestingly, don't crucify him. God does. When you and I come to faith in Christ, not only have we died with Christ, but listen, we have been crucified with him. The old man has been put on the cross. God killed the old man. And we are to live the crucified life. Now, to crucify life means you are to take up your cross and you're to die daily. Now, let's be honest. We like the thought of the cross, but we don't like the reality of what the cross does because the cross brings a price. A lot of us, we like the cross. As a matter of fact, we want, we want a comfortable cross. Yeah, I'll take up my cross every day, but I want to make sure I have a nice pad on it so the splinters don't get in my back. Or maybe I'll give me some little nice little foam handles that I could drag my cross with. Or better yet, let's put a wheel on the back of it. Or oh, even better than that, let's put a motor on the back of it. No, let's, let's shrink the cross. Let's make it 
Let's make it decorative. How about gold? I'll wear it around my neck or maybe I'll have it in my ring or I'll have it in my pocket. That's not the picture of the cross. The cross is a picture of you dying every single day. No person ever got off the cross except Jesus came back from the cross. And the picture of the cross is to die to yourself. That means this, every day when I live the crucified life, I am reminding myself that I'm dead to sin. I am immersed in Jesus. I'm identified with him. And I'm gonna live my life in such a way that demonstrates the old man has been put to death. That's the picture. But it's only half of it. You see, the second half is we're to live the resurrected life. It's one thing to live the crucified life. I can remember many years ago, people going around, are you living the crucified life, brother? Hey, sister, are you living the crucified life? That was kind of the spiritual thing. Yeah, that's wonderful. But it's only half. The other half is we're to live the resurrected life. Paul says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Jesus will never die again. Why? Because death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Now, he didn't die to his own sin. He was sinless. He died for our sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Listen, not only would he live the crucified life, Paul says the implication is you are to live the resurrected life. Just as Jesus came from the dead, you came from the dead. Just by the Spirit of God raising him to life, the Spirit of God has given you life. Just as he is free and set free from sin, you are set free from sin. And the rest of your life is this life of sanctification where the Holy Spirit who lives in you guides you to live a life that makes you more and more like Jesus Christ. And here's the best part. Jesus has a resurrected body that will be for eternity. You and I can have a resurrected life right now, but we're looking to eternity one day to have that perfect body like him. Isn't that going to be wonderful? Isn't that going to be wonderful? No more problems, no more aches, no more cellulite, no more pimples, no more bad breath. We can eat all we want and never get fat. I mean, it's going to be perfect. And the assurance for that is the reality that Jesus has already raised from the dead. And we have that. So, grace is greater than our stubborn sin because of what Christ has done. Paul says this incompatible position of living the way you want and presuming on the grace of God cannot happen because you have died, you have been immersed in his death, you have been identified in his life, you have been crucified with him, and you have been raised with him to victory. That's what we have. Then he closes with three imperatives. Now, an imperative is a command in the Greek. And he gives us three commands that we are to walk by as believers. What's the first one? Consider. One word, consider. We are to consider. What are we to consider? He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bible and you like to circle words, circle that word consider. It's very important. That word consider means to reckon. It means to credit, 
to count that you are dead to sin, but you're alive to Jesus. There's two parts of it. You're dead to sin, you're alive to Jesus. It means every single day, it is a bookkeeper's term. It is to write in a ledger paid for or debt paid. It is to say dead to sin, alive to Jesus. And you just remember that every single day. It's been credited to you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. You didn't earn it. He gave it to you. Our pastors like to play golf every now and then. And sometimes what we do is we get a number of us together and we form two teams and we go play a scramble. Now, a scramble is a game where each person hits the ball, but you take the best ball hit on each shot and then everybody plays from there. I have to tell you that all of our pastors are about equal when it comes to golf. None of us should play for a living. And, um, but we play for fun. But we go and we'll do these golf scrambles. And at the end of the day, the team with the lowest score wins. Well, one day we have a friend who set up a golf scramble for us at a very nice course that we didn't even have to pay for. So all of us show up there. We divide in two teams and we're gonna keep the best score. Now I have to say, my team won. My team won because we had Rhett Graham on our team. And I knew we would win. Rhett Graham played um, golf in college at Coastal Carolina at Myrtle Beach. He was a golf pro at Eagle Point. He's been in golf his whole life. This guy's phenomenal golfer, so he's on our team. So all of us could have just sat in the cart and let Rhett play. And we basically, every shot he hit, we played his shot. Almost every putt, we played his shot. At the end of the day, we beat the other team badly. But here's the deal. We didn't beat because of our scores. We beat because of what Rhett did. And because he was on our team, every wonderful birdie he made was our birdie. And it was credited to us. And as you live your life, you can consider the fact that you're dead and you're alive because of what Jesus has credited to you. Here's the second thing. Not only consider, but stop. Stop. Now, this is a hard one. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Stop letting sin have its way in you. The old man is dead. He has no right, but you keep feeding him. Stop it. Now, you might say, Phil, that is pie in the sky kind of stuff. Come on. We all have sins. We have temptations. We do. But those sins and those temptations do not have dominion over you. They just don't. You can live your life not in sinless perfection. There's no way we can do that. But you can live with great victory over sin. How do you put sin to death? I'm gonna give you a very simple way. How do you kill sin? Here's how you do it. You starve it. You starve it. In the 14th century, there were two brothers who were part of a kingdom that they were fighting to be the duke over that kingdom. That kingdom is now Belgium. One of the brothers' name was Reynald. The other brother was Edward. Rinald was the older brother. He also had a nickname called Carsis. And in Latin, it meant fat. He was obesely overweight. 
He was grossly overweight. And so Renald, this fat king, took on his younger brother, Edward, who was a soldier in the army and fit. The two battled. Edward wins. He captures his brother, Renald, and he doesn't put him to death. Here's what he does. He puts him in the castle. He builds a room for his brother with one door. And the door is never locked. But the man can leave anytime he wants. But here's the problem. He's so obese, he can't walk out the door. There are no bars on the windows. He can climb out anytime he wants. But he was so obese, he couldn't get out the windows. Now, all Reynald had to do was just say, okay, I'm going to diet. I'm going to lose the weight. And when I do, I can walk free through the door. But his brother did one other thing. Every day, Edward would bring to him the most delicious of foods and snacks and pastries and sweet things and leave it in his room. And all Reynald had to do is say, no, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to lose my weight and I'm going to be free. But instead, he kept giving in to his fleshly passions. He gained more weight. He was in that room for 10 years. It wasn't until his younger brother Edward was killed in battle that Reynald was free to go. And I want to tell you, a lot of times in our Christian life, we are free from those sins but we keep feeding them. And when you feed them, your sinful man becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And you don't even realize that he has no power, but you do in Christ. Starve the sins. Do not feed them. So Paul says, consider you're dead and alive. Stop feeding your sins. Thirdly, present. He said, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It's a wonderful thing he says here. He says, present your members. What does that mean? That means the the members of your body. Your mouth, your tongue, your lips, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, your ambitions, your desires, all of those things, present those to God. Why? Because sin does not have dominion over you. There's the encouragement. The promise is that you will overcome sin. It will always be present until we're with Jesus. But for now, you can overcome it. And the last thing is just simply a test. If you are unable to get dominion over sin in your life and you continue to live a habitual lifestyle of sin against God, you have every reason to question whether you've ever been saved. You really do. And I don't say that to you as something hurtful. I say that to you as something helpful because you need to know the truth. But one of the things we need to remember is as we close this message is that God's grace is greater and stubborn sins. And God's grace changes your life. It's not a matter of just doing as much as you can and presuming on the grace of God because God has changed you. You don't want to do that anymore. You have a new passion. You have a new outlook. You have a new Lord. You want to live a particular way. The dead man is gone. Leave him in the grave. I read this story 
about this guy who had some neighbors who raised rabbits. And they were always out there at the pens looking at the rabbits and they celebrated and they had one particular rabbit that was their prize rabbit. One morning he got up and he was drinking his coffee, standing on the porch, let his dog out. And after a couple of minutes, here comes his dog back with a dead rabbit from the neighbor in his mouth. And the rabbit was full of mud and dirt and grime. And the man panicked. He said, my dog killed the rabbit. What am I going to do? And so he takes the rabbit and the rabbit's kind of, kind of warm still and kind of not really, really stiff, but because it's been in his mouth, it loosened up. So he took the rabbit and he looked at it. He said, I know what I'll do. He stuck it in the sink and he bathed it. He put soap all over it. He washed it up. He got all the mud and the dirt off. Then he took a blow dryer and he blow dried it. He fluffed that rabbit up, man. He made that rabbit look clean and shiny. Then he took that rabbit and it was stiff and he formed it into a rabbit sitting. His neighbors went home, so he went over there to their cage. He opened up the cage. He put that dead rabbit right in the corner of that cage and he shut the door. He walked back. He thought, good, they'll know nothing about it. And all day he waited patiently for the neighbors to come home. They came home and he was watching. One of the kids ran out to the cave and all of a sudden he ran back in. All of a sudden the whole family comes out to the cage. They're all standing in a circle and they're gesturing and things like that. He said, you know what? I better get over there and ask him what's going on and pretend I don't know so I can cover my crime. So he walks over there. He said, hey, what's happening? He said, well, we don't understand. Our rabbit's in the cage. He said, well, wait a minute. Isn't that where you normally keep your rabbit? He says, yes, we always keep our rabbit in a cage, except something you don't know. This rabbit died three days ago. We buried him in the woods, and now he's back. (laughs) Y'all didn't see that coming, did you? Isn't that what we do with the dead man? We go and we dig him up put a little perfume on them, blow dry them, cake on a little makeup, different outfit, try to make him look presentable, but he's dead. She's dead. Leave him in the ground. Live the crucified, resurrected life in the grace of God that has transformed your life. Believer, leave the dead man alone. He is not helpful. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you are that dead man. You are. You're spiritually dead. You're under the wrath of God and the condemnation to come. But God has you here to know that Jesus has already paid the price to set you free And when you surrender your life to him, you yield to him everything that you have and you are. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will transform you. He will take that old person of yours and nail him to the tree to never again have power over you. He will fill you with his very spirit. And your eyes, spiritual eyes, will begin to open your heart and your mind will begin to think of the things that God has done and you can walk in freedom. Doesn't matter how much you dress the dead man up, he's still dead. And eventually, he will smell and decay. 
and be separated. Some of you have been hearing this message for some time, and I'm just going to tell you, it's time for you to act. It's time for you to surrender. You know what Jesus has done? Surrender. Send up the white flag and say, I give myself today, and I'm so fully submitting to you. Give your life to him. Believer, live the life he's given you in freedom and in grace. Let's pray. Father, as you know, it is our desire this morning to end with a song, but we'll not be able to do that here or at the Cross Point Center. But Father, we submit ourselves to you today and we ask that you would have your way with us. Thank you for the good news of who we are in Jesus and the victory that we have in Christ. Help us as believers to see that we are distinctively different from the world and may we live in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ today. Thank you, Father. For those who are not believers, Father, I pray today that they would surrender to you. That they would just, just call out on you and ask you to forgive them of their sins. In fact, I'm going to stop praying right now. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you are here today and you're not a believer, you've never trusted Christ, you've been hearing the messages over and over and over, and yet God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you to surrender now. And you're willing to do that, would you just pray this prayer to yourself? Just say, dear God, I am a sinner. And I thank you for Jesus and what he's done for me on the cross, that he has provided a way for me to be reconciled to you. And right now, I surrender my life to you. I give you all of my past, my present, my future. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come and live inside of me. I send up the white flag of surrender that you would be my king. And right now, I trust you. I trust Jesus as my savior and my Lord. And I commit to follow him all my days with your help. Thank you for hearing my prayer and forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.